Hebrews 1 and I think we have one more, I think, no promises, one more in Galatians. I just felt like with my trip, I didn't have the time to dedicate to the exegesis that I wanted to do with that passage. So I decided to do more really of a topical sermon this morning on the sufficiency of God's Word. And uh, we'll look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 as our kind of jumping off point this morning. Uh, but let's pray before we go to the Word. Uh, Lord our God your word instructs us our minds are corrected by uh, your word our ideas are sharpened by the truths in your word but uh, more than that your word is powerful it's a working word it's a life giving word it's a saving word and a sanctifying word and Your word, O Lord, is enough. Forgive us for our dissatisfaction with it, for moving on to shiny uh, distractions, for supposing we've somehow exhausted the inexhaustible wellspring of eternal life. May we, as your people in this time, in this place, by your mercy, be more and more a people for whom your word is enough. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. it's been rightly pointed out that the battle over the sufficiency of scripture is the battle of our day the question is is scripture enough Uh, in the 70s the battle was over inerrancy R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packard, James Montgomery Boyce um, with their counsel on biblical inerrancy produced the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy Uh, and some have said I think rightly that by and large in the evangelical church, those men won the battle over inerrancy. But they also warned us that inerrancy is not enough. Inerrancy being the affirmation that uh, nothing, um, inerrancy meaning that anything that the Bible affirms is true. But they warned that, that inerrancy is not enough. Affirmation of inerrancy is not enough. Boyce Boyce, uh, himself warned, he said this, he said in the 16th century, the battle was against those who wanted to add church traditions to scripture. But in our day, the battle is against those who have to use worldly means to do God's work. 
So the battle that needs to be won and fought in our day is the battle for sufficiency, the sufficiency of Scripture. Is it enough? And it's a battle that I think thus far we seem to be losing. Kevin DeYoung comments that of the four attributes of Scripture, which are sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity, sufficiency may be the one that evangelicals forget first. If authority is the liberal problem, clarity the postmodern problem, necessity the problem for atheists and agnostics, then sufficiency is the attribute most quickly doubted by rank-and-file church-going Christians. The evidence uh, for that, I think we need to look around us and we see that we think we need gimmicks and sales techniques to be successful in our evangelism. We believe we have to entertain people in our church services. The Bible, for some, has become supplemental to CNN or Fox News rather than the other way around. Many in our day are dissatisfied with God's written revelation and are seeking out that higher knowledge, the personal revelation directly from God himself. Games and pizza are the new catechisms. God's shepherds have to be CEOs and vision casters rather than preachers and prayers. So it's painfully obvious, God's word is not enough for us. Every self-proclaimed Protestant gives lip service to sola scriptura, but our practice betrays us. Sufficiency of scripture is, I think, rightly noted as the battle of our day. So what is the sufficiency of scripture? I think a simple definition um, is that the Bible contains everything we need to know about God and all that he expects from us. It's often phrased as everything for faith and practice or faith and godliness. In other words, we don't need to, in fact, we can't look to anything else other than the Bible for our salvation and our sanctification. The Bible contains everything we need to know about God and all that he expects from us. Now, looking at what sufficiency is not is important too. It doesn't mean that the Bible contains everything we want to know about God. I would like to know the mechanics of how the Trinity works. It doesn't tell us that. I want to know God's secret will. What is his plan for my life? What career should I pursue? What person should I marry? These are questions we ask. What lesson is God teaching me in this trial? We'd like to know God's secret will. It doesn't reveal that to us. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Also, what it's not is, is that he's left some things for us to discern for ourselves through the use of wisdom, biblical wisdom and biblical principles, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Westminster Confession, chapter 1. Section 6, the latter half, says there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, 
according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Um, so, should we start worship at 10 or 10.30? <laughs> the Bible doesn't say. Should we have chairs or pews? May we worship in a school or should we have a church building? The Bible doesn't answer these things, but it does give us principles and it does give us um, God gives us wisdom via the Holy Spirit to make these decisions. Likewise, uh, another thing that sufficiency does not mean is that is that the Bible is not meant to be a textbook on everything. It gives us universal and timeless truths that we apply to all topics, but its purpose is not to answer every question we have about the world around us. It's not a geology textbook. It's not an exhaustive history of mankind. If we want to know about dinosaurs, honestly, the best place to dig is not the scriptures, but the dirt. (laughs) That said, there's nothing revealed about the nature of God, his glory, his divinity, his eternal power that is revealed in geology, history, and paleontology that's not more plainly revealed in the pages of scripture. So before moving on, we also need to make a quick distinction between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. And there are some, like the, the, the KJV-only types that we talked about this morning that believe in solo scriptura, that that's the only book we may read, that creeds and confessions are sinful because they're not the Bible. But we recognize that these things as summaries of the Bible are useful and necessary for us. Um, so... Sufficiency doesn't mean that we only look at the Bible or that general revelation is not helpful to us, but that the only authority is Scripture. And it is all that we need to know about God and what He expects of us. The Bible is a book that reveals God and His saving plan to us. That's its primary purpose. And it teaches us about who God is, His character, His purposes, His thoughts, his expectations, and his will for our lives. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins the way it does, and it goes immediately from the chief end of man into Scripture. I'll just just go through the first three questions and answers with you. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right away into Scripture, the next question, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And the third question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach tips and strategies how we can glorify ourselves by building for ourselves the utopic society and gives us all the details we want to know about science and the secret will of God. Is that right, Cohen? What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. God gives us everything we need to know about Himself so that we might be saved and that we can live lives pleasing before Him. Now, just because it does give us everything we need to live lives pleasing before Him doesn't mean we do, but it does give it to us. The first half of 
the confession, chapter 1 and and section 6, reads that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. The the Bible is enough. That's the simple definition of the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is enough. It's enough to save us and it's enough to sanctify us. As Paul says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, that the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation, and that because they are God-breathed, they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the scripture contains. It, it, it can equip us for every good work. That's what sufficiency means. So if this is the battle of our day, um, where are the fronts, so to speak? Uh, I have a few. Obviously, there's more than I have here. But um, the first front where this is being fought, and it's being fought in a number of ways, but in the, is, is the knowledge of God. How do we know God? The scripture is enough that we can know God. Uh, one example that I hear often is that, well, I, I find God more and I feel God more in my fishing boat or in the hunting woods. I hear that a lot. That the nature is my church. Scripture indicates that while general revelation does communicate to us um, about God, that it's insufficient. It's insufficient to save. It's insufficient to sanctify. Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So nature, the fishing, the lake, the, the woods, they are sufficient to reveal God to us, but they are only sufficient enough to condemn us. We need special revelation. We need the scriptures to save and to sanctify us. Now, I love nature. Uh, I see God's handiwork everywhere in nature. The other day I've been teaching boys devotions here at the school and uh, I had the boys they're kind of going through um, the spiritual discipline so we're talking about meditation so I had the boys I just wanted to weird them out so I made them go sit by themselves and think about trees it it worked I did weird them out happily I enjoyed that very much but I was pointing out to them the difference between eastern and western or eastern and christian meditation and that um, Eastern meditation is emptying the mind. Christian meditation is filling the mind about Christ and about His Word. 
So I said, think about trees, but connect trees to the scriptures and to Christ. Well, if you sit and think about it for a while, I mean, scripture begins with trees. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the, the tree of uh, life. And then it ends with trees, a tree of life and revelation. And in the very middle, Christ dies on a tree, bears our curse. So there's a lot to connect between nature and Scripture and Christ. But the point is that uh, general revelation is interpreted through special revelation. Another front is similar. We have the knowledge of God. We also have the knowledge of God's will. Well, what is God's will for my life? You, just, you hear this often. I'm just praying over it to, to see whether or not it's God's will. Well, God's not going to tell you the future. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that it is the, this is the will of God, your sanctification, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. God is not going to tell you the future. And you can't ever do anything that's outside of God's secret and decretive will. Now, I wrestled with, as, as one would in a fork in the road, whether or not to come here. Well, the reason I know that it was God's will that I come here is that I'm standing here. You can't live outside of the decretive secret will of God. The scriptures instead give us principles and wisdoms to, wisdom to make wise decisions for the glory of God. And the Spirit illumines us to rightly interpret and, and apply the scriptures to our lives. So then the questions to ask in those situations is, is it sinful? Is it to the glory of God? Is it in accord with Scripture? God is not a magic eight ball that if you shake him up, he'll just tell you what to do. Scripture is sufficient to guide us into all godliness. Now, another area where this battle is being waged is in evangelism. Uh, one example is just kind of general attractionalism that every crazy scheme under the sun except for preaching the gospel is used to, to evangelize. Whereas Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And the idea, I think usually well-meaning, is it's a means to bring people in to hear the gospel. And the problem is it, it it never quite gets to the gospel. Exactly. Similarly, another area where this is being waged is in discipleship. Um, again, similar attractionalism. Um, a guy, there was a conference for the school a few months back, and the guy speaking, I, I liked him, I connected with him a little bit, and he was tell, I was telling him about our church and that it's smaller. He says, I, I like that, you know. He said, I used to, to lead uh, a youth ministry at my church, a larger church. I had like 12 kids. We would go through the Bible. And they're all still, as far as I know, walking with the Lord. And then he said, the guy who took over after me, you know, brought in Xboxes and pizza. And it, it, the program exploded. But he said, as far as I know, those kids aren't walking with the Lord. This is the kind of discipleship that we're seeing. Whereas in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Discipleship is about teaching and learning. 
I don't have a problem with pizza, games, developing relationships, or having a good time, but let's not let pizza and games become the new catechesis. The things we are listening to are discipling us. The things we're propagating are discipling people. The the question is, what are we being discipled by? What are we discipling people into? You know, we might have fewer kids or, or no kids if our program is rigorous Bible study and catechism. But the question is, is the Bible sufficient for us? And if it is, don't change the program. Another area, a large category, is the church. I think I see two big sides to this. The one is the very sort of relaxed, uh, we just want to do life together mentality. And the other side is kind of the, the, the business CEO vision casting side. How does scripture, how does Paul call on Titus and Timothy to run the church? To set things in order, he says, to call elders and deacons, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So again, I, I don't have a problem with doing life if it's properly conceived. I was just talking with Doreen. Familial community is absolutely essential in the Christian faith, but not at the expense of the word, not at the expense of proclamation and preaching, not at the expense of scripturally defined authority. On the other side, I have no problem either with vision casting um, properly conceived. We need to know what we're about, um, what our mission is, how our people, our context, our unique calling plays into the greater mission of fulfilling the Great Commission. We, we do need that. But we do not need business principles, business books, business degrees, of which I have one. Um, We don't need those things. The church does not need Myers-Briggs or Maslow's hierarchy of needs or the Enneagram to to function. We don't need those things. We don't need a perfectly defined vision and mission statement. (laughs) We already have one. We, we, We don't need to define the ethos of our church. We don't need a logo. We don't need to build a brand. I see these things even this weekend in our own presbytery. And in many ways, I think it's kind of unavoidable in these days, especially for larger churches. I don't want to be insensitive to that, um, some of these things. But, you know, we ourselves, the primary reason we have a website and a Google business page is to market our church. The fact is, that's the primary way people search for churches. If I go to a new city, I'm looking at Google. So in some ways, we need those things. So again, I don't have a problem with marketing or having a logo or mission and vision statements, uh, but we don't need those things to be a faithful church. And most of all, God be merciful to us if we change our message one jot or tittle to bend the knee to cater to the whims of a consumeristic society. Another area where the sufficiency of Scripture battle is being waged is on social issues. 
you know, you hear it regularly that scripture can't comment on X, Y, or Z because it's this old book. Scripture can't comment on race or, or sexuality. But Isaiah 40, verse 8 says that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. The word of God is timeless. Its principles and truths are timeless. And the problem really isn't that people think it's too old. The problem is that people don't really believe it is God's revelation. God has spoken clearly or authoritatively and finally. So it is sufficient to deal with all social issues as well. There's many more. Those are just some fronts, but we'll move on. Before we close, I kind of want to return to Hebrews 1 and just draw out a few principles from those four verses as they pertain to the topic of sufficiency. I'll just read it again. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, So the first thing I just want to point out is that we live in a new, uh, what's the word, revelatory epoch. He contrasts here, long ago and in these last days. So we are in these last days. We have been since Christ. So that's not to say tomorrow Jesus is coming back or something. He may, that'd be great. Um, But we are in, in the epoch of not long ago, but in these last days. In this phase, uh, there is no um, new phase of new revelation to anticipate. We are in the last days. So, you often hear this, we need to tune in to what the Spirit is saying today. Well, God continues to speak powerfully today uh, through His Word, through the Bible, and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the Bible, is living and active. It speaks today. And happily, we live in this epoch of the fullest revelation that God has made to man, this side of glory. And it is glorious. It's so glorious that Peter says angels long to look into what we have received. Second thing I want us to see from these verses is that God's mode of revelation has changed with the epoch. God's mode of revelation has changed. It was diverse, many times, many ways. Prophecies, visions, dreams, laws, commandments. Now it's singular And it's personal by his son. Jesus is the incarnate revelation of God, attested to by the apostles in the Gospels, 
and expounded by the apostles in the epistles. Jesus is the Word of God, and that's where we find him, is on the pages of the New Testament. And third, uh, that revelation is as final as redemption. Revelation is as final as redemption. Uh, The second person of the Trinity, who it says created all things, sustains all things, all by the word of his power, he spoke it into existence and he, he, he keeps it there. He has spoken decisively on the cross. He, he's the son of Eve. He's the seed of, of Abraham. He's the rock in the wilderness. He's the heir of David's throne. He, he's been saving. He's been doing this redemptive work for all history. And now he has made purifications for sin. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He said, it is finished. His revealing and redeeming works are complete. Kevin DeYoung points out in his book, Taking God at His Word, that Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, he's completed all of these three roles. He is our king. He's seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father on high. He is our priest, is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. He is our high priest. And then finally, he says, as prophet, God has decisively spoken in his Son. He has shown us all we need to know, believe, and do. There is nothing more to say. And yet, God keeps speaking through what he has already said. The word of God is living and active. And when the scriptures are read, the Holy Spirit still speaks. question is, do we believe that when we're sleepy at six in the morning? Is this book we're holding the speech of God? God's holy word is full and complete, lacking nothing for our faith and our godliness, except our willingness to submit to it. I find it to be a a uh, sound maxim of preaching that when you're tired and you've gotten home from a trip and you don't have a solid conclusion, you close by quoting Charles Spurgeon. And nobody complains <laughs> with that. <laughs> so with that, I did leave the whole section. I stole this section from um, Phil Johnson's blog. But this, this section that I put out on the table, if you didn't get it, get it on your way out. But it closes with these words um, that are just great. And it's definitely, it's a page and a half, so it's worth, worth your time reading. As beautiful as Spurgeon so often is. Um, he says, The Word of God is quite sufficient to interest and bless the souls of men throughout all time. But novelties soon fail. Surely, one cries, we must add our own thoughts thereto. My brother, think by all means, but the thoughts of God are better than yours. You may shed fine thoughts as trees in autumn cast their leaves, but there is one who knows more about your thoughts than you do, and he thinks little of them. Is it not written, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity? To liken our thoughts to the great thoughts of God would be gross absurdity. Would you bring your candle to show the sun, your nothingness to replenish the eternal all? It is better to be silent before the Lord than to dream of supplementing what he has spoken. 
The word of the Lord is to the conceptions of men as a garden to a wilderness. Keep within the covers of the sacred book, and you are in the land which floweth with milk and honey. Why seek to add to it the desert sands? Amen.